Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. And we are joined now as we are every Wednesday by a representative of the American Legion. He is Mr. Eric Gopel, Assistant Director of National Security Division at the American Legion. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you, Eric. I love it when there's another Eric to talk to. This is going to get so confusing for people out in town. Uh, I'll be Eric 1, you be Eric 2. All right. I'm not sure if I appreciate that that numbering order, but I'll follow My show, along. Yeah, my right. order. There you go. <laughs> How about we just stick with calling you Eric, and we don't even need to use my name. So, Eric, of course, a member of the American Legion and a veteran yourself. So tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, when you served, and what you did. Sure. I'm originally from Southern California. I joined the Army when I was 18 in 2003. During uh, you know a few months after the Iraq War kicked off, served for seven years, uh, most of the time in uh, as a support, IT support uh, in uh, special operations, and then after that, you know did some contract work, went to community college, got to uh, got to UC Berkeley on the GI Bill, ended up in DC a couple of years ago, and I've basically been doing policy and advocacy work since I've uh, since then. What was that transition like for you? I mean, it sounds like you. you a bunch of stuff, contracting sure. work, college, and I do want to talk about the specific college that you went to here in just a moment, <laughs> but uh, it sounds like you did quite a bit of stuff, but think back to that transition period, seven sure. years a soldier, and now all of a sudden you're Eric the civilian again. What do you remember most about that time period? Well, I mean, honestly, the contracting piece uh, that year was a, actually was a pretty nice sort of transition from, you know, active duty to, to being a civilian, because I was essentially doing the same work I did on active duty with far less responsibility and far more pay. Right. So it was, a, it was a nice sort of change of pace, and it gave me enough, enough free time to figure out what I wanted to do with my next, you know, in my, the next step in my life. Right, and that can be uh, beneficial to people. I've found a lot of people have tried to find something, uh, obviously within the same job field. I mean, right. if you can find that, it's kind of hard to find. Like if you're an infantryman finding an infantry unit outside of the army, uh, it's possible, but sure. it's it's difficult, of course. Uh, finding that that space for you to kind of ease the transition, it seems like finding a similar situation can be beneficial. Is that was that a goal of yours, or did it just happen to work out that way? It really just happened to work out that way. I was in the reserves for a few months after I got off active duty. I had actually continued to plan. Uh, I planned on continued service and basically through the reserves. Uh, but a old colleague of mine with, from my last unit called me up out of the blue and was like, do you want to go to Afghanistan for a year? I'm like, not particularly. Uh, and then he, qu- then he said what it was worth. I'm like, okay, no one's yeah. throwing that kind of money at me. So you know what? why when, wouldn't I? When I got there and there was an American civilian working uh, in uh, the, the building that my office was in, she was uh, up the stairs in a, a building that was just a few feet away from ours. And I, I found out she was a civilian working in a map office. She did right. something with mapping. I was like, man, what would make you come over here? And then I found out how much she was being paid. I was like, oh, that makes sense now. It's I kind understand. of obscene, yeah. honestly, what, what contractors can pull down compared to, you know, because I, I mean, I'm, I'm fully honest in this. I did a quarter of the work that I did doing the exact same, well, an even more res- limited version of my job in the Army. Uh, got, paid got paid substantially more. more yeah. right. it's, well, 
they have to dangle that carrot to get people to go to Afghanistan. It's yeah, not a big tourism destination <laughs> these days, you know what I mean? Of course, after the contracting work, you mentioned college, and sounds like sure. a, a similar trajectory to mine, community college yep. to start off with, which for me was a nice, inexpensive way to figure out if I wanted to be in another classroom, and it turned out... I would out, encourage everybody to do it. Yeah, yeah it, it worked out for me. Some people, it doesn't. Some people go, and they're like, no, that's right, I hate being in school. I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> and that's fine, you know, it's not for everybody. For me, uh, it worked out great. I did well at the community college transferred to a school as you did uc berkeley now that's always interesting to hear veteran slash berkeley grad you'd be surprised how many marines are at uc berkeley most most of my veteran class were marines that's interesting most of the officers in the in our little uh, veterans club when you look at the branches of service the marine corps uh, by virtue of what they do by virtue of uh, the way that they're set up uh, tend to skew more conservative than any other branch i mean we were just talking fairly recently about uh, a poll that was done i think by military times on uh, the opinion poll on, on active duty military and what they think of uh, of the current president his highest support was in the Marine Corps. Oh, yeah. Man, it was high. So the Berkeley experience, did you go there with any trepidation? I mean, you're from Southern California, sure. you said. That's Northern California, which is a whole different world. I know <laughs> enough about that place. I have family in NorCal. Um, did you go in there thinking like, oh, there's going to be people spitting on me every day? Uh, you know, I th- I mean, this was 2014, I guess, when I started back up. I mean, the year, I mean, think of that, right? So we uh, September 11th, we... And we went into Afghanistan in October of 2001. Most of those kids were, you know, four or five. Yeah. You know, so to them, war is an abstract concept and school's hard enough. No one had time for, <laughs> yeah, to basically, uh, you know, uh, go after us. So, I mean, and on, you know, so if anything, the knowledge of foreign affairs, particularly as it relates to the global war on terror- terrorism, is incredibly low. Not j- right. And I was I was sort of disappointed by the sort of lack of interest and, and lack of awareness on campus more than anything else. Did you feel uh, an opportunity or a responsibility to kind of help people understand things a little bit more? Because I, I had a little bit of that sure. where some of the kids would look and be like, hey, old guy with the beard, uh, you've been <laughs> some places, tell us some things. Did you have any of that at Berkeley where, again, you have, uh, that's like the epicenter for, you know, what the people call the liberal snowflake sure. ideology and all that stuff. Uh, did you Did you feel any need to do that or did you have the opportunity to do it? I mean, I, you know, there were some individual students, I think, that uh, might have had some, you know, questions in like one-on-one type settings. But in, in general, you know, for the most part, we were accepted as a, you know, as a, we were also a very small fraction of the population. We're talking right. maybe 1% of the student body was, was veterans or were veterans or are veterans. Um, so, I mean, like the, and there, were, there weren't any formal sort of outreach events and like trying to explain, you know, the, yeah. uh, like an insider's view of, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan yeah. 10 years on, uh, which, you know, looking back might, might've been a missed opportunity. Yeah. I mean, you, you always can look back. Hindsight is sure. twenty twenty, And <laughs> it's interesting, you know, talking about the college experience and hearing that you went to Berkeley in particular, I've gotten a lot of questions from my fellow veterans. who are like, oh, you went back to college. All the all the liberal kids coming at you for being a veteran and stuff. And I was like, no, none of it. I had an issue with one professor. Right. It was actually at the community college, not at the, uh, the four-year university that I went to. But in general, uh, people were very respectful of that. Some people didn't care at all, which, hey, that's fine by me yeah. too. Just let me do my thing. I'm here to get an education. Um, but overall found that those things that you see on TV happening on the college campuses – oftentimes are the outlier and they're being filmed because they are out of the ordinary. 
there may be more ordinary at Berkeley than they are at like Hofstra where I went, but still they're out of the ordinary. It wasn't, it wasn't every day you were right. walking through that there was some uh, protest going on, right? No, no. Well, there was always someone, you know, on the quad, you know, or, Doing or something. By, right, yeah, of outside of like Sproul Hall, you know, yelling on a microphone because you know, the, the, po- the campus is essentially open to the public. Yeah. It's it's right on. Uh, I'm sure you've seen yeah, it. Right, right, yeah, and many colleges. Mine is too. Hofstra right. University, uh, Hempstead Turnpike runs right through it. Anybody can drive in and park there. Um, right. You'll get a ticket if you don't have the correct sticker on sure. your car eventually. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's many universities are of course just public campuses. You know, so there were there's always a fair number of people that are out there expressing expressing their you know their First Amendment rights and. Oh, yeah. Happy to be doing it in a you know nice sunny environment like Berkeley. I'm sure. There you go. Hey. Worst places to protest. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say they're better ones too. I don't know. <laughs> I I would think if I could have picked any school, it might have been someplace in like San Diego. That would have been nice. You know, if I if you know San Diego was my was my first choice, and right. Berkeley was actually like uh, five or ten days like after the other UCs. Right. If, if the UC process, you kind of just check off a bunch application, of application. Yeah. They, right. It's you. It's a common application across the system. So I checked off all the schools I thought I had a chance of getting into. And I'm like, well, okay, I didn't hear from Berkeley. I got, you know, UC San Diego on, on board, so let's go with that. And then they yeah. follow up. I'm like, well. Had the uh, right program for right. you at Berkeley. Well, right. yeah, it's, well, and then you kind of realize it's like, well, it's, is it better to go with a, you know, program? I mean, and at the bachelor's level, I mean, does it really matter? You know, master's maybe more so. Yeah. But at, bach- at the bachelor's level, I thought, well, I'll go with the most you know established, right. renowned thing I can get into. That, that like the GI me. Bill will pay all you know pay for essentially. <laughs> I just lucked into going to uh, what you know I wanted to work in the radio industry and media right. industry, and it just happened that I met a beautiful girl who lived a few minutes away from the number one radio school in the country. And we nice when that works out. Yeah, it was right there, so I transferred over there, and uh, and and that's where I ended up going. Greatest college radio station in the nation, many years running now. But of course, the uh, the the transition period oftentimes includes the educational period, but that comes to an end. There are limits on the GI Bill. There are graduations, yep. and there's also that desire to get out there and do something. I know I had that, like Billy Madison disease we've talked about before, mm-hmm. where it's like, I don't feel like I'm in exactly the right place. By the time I finished up, I was so ready to go and, as we, and get yeah, out As there, was I. You know? I mean, because some, to some extent, you feel like you. this is something you have to do because it's a... Uh, it's a uh, you know a sort of check. You ch- it's a check the box kind of thing, right? Right. And I, I don't want to like it, don't be reductionist and like education is more than that. But ultimately, I was in my early 30s when I went yeah. back to school, and I'm like, okay, I understand. I read. I'm already into this stuff, political science in particular. So this is just the steps I have to go through to show everybody else that I at least have some basic understanding of this. And of course, when that comes to an end, eventually you find your way to the American Legion. So let's talk about exactly how that came to be. You're now the assistant director of the National Security Division at the Legion. How'd you come to be a part of the organization? So I got to D.C. in uh, winter of 2016, early 2016. And from there, you know, did the internship through Hillvets, which is another organization that uh, we're Justin, familiar. Justin Brown's on that time. <laughs> through, uh, through Hillvets, I was able to, sh- to secure a fellowship in the Senate. And then from that fellowship, uh, once that fellowship ended, I applied for an open position at the Legion, interviewed, and uh, they picked me up. So Wow, so pretty uh, pretty good transition there, getting yeah. out of no, college. I've, I've, I've been very lucky throughout every, right. you know, every step I've... Was yeah, that, there's been a lot. What that. was the mo- what was the more difficult transition from you know military to civilian or from student to working in the workforce? Well, I don't. Yeah, 
I mean, I'm I'm not gonna lie. I don't really I, I don't really have didn't really struggle te- you know a whole lot with my transition process. Right. It always felt. You know, there were times, when, especially when I was in community college, and like, when am I ever going to get out of community college? <laughs> when am I go- when am I going to get to a school where I, that I can actually get a bachelor's? Right. So there were there were points where where uh, during this during my time as a student, at least, where as we as we might have we talked about earlier, you know, talk getting into just getting out there and being able to work again, like that was my my biggest motivation. So, you know, understanding the process to do that. Get your degree, you know. Do your internships, do, oh, yeah. your, do fellowships if you can get it, you know, and then you know transition to a full time position. So that's I tried to follow that track as closely as I could, and, it, and it's worked out uh, for me. The community college thing can be interesting. When I got there, they were like, "You know all of the things you need to know for this degree, <laughs> but we can't just give it to you. So you right. actually have to take these courses, to check off the box." But it's always fascinating so yeah of course coming into your current position assistant director of national security there are numerous issues that relate to national security and the veteran community first and foremost i think uh, and some people may not think of it in terms of national security but it's it's a threat to a lot of us and that is the opioid epidemic so can you tell us a little bit about what the legion is doing to address this this scourge of the veteran community so the legion's focus on the opioid epidemic we're trying to, you know, play to our strengths, right? We we see ourselves as conveners and as educators. You know, we're not necessarily writing the policies, but what we do or what we can do is connect, you know, our membership who are often on the front line of the opioid epidemics, first responders, you know, mm-hmm. police officers who are seeing, you know, people o- overdosing multiple times, you know, a week in their communities, you know, seeing a lot of people overdosing and dying oh, yeah. in their communities. Connect those individuals with you know, this, the policy machine, research machine that exists within D.C. And then with, you know, between those two groups, try to find policies that we think will actually impact uh, the epidemic at a, you know, a level that, you know, that we can actually see progress. Right. You know, and ultimately it, it almost always comes down to money. That's, that is the, unfor- well, that is the unfortunate thing about it. It's the reality of but it. But it's the reality. I mean, it's the reality right? of it, everything. It costs money. And every problem does. It, every problem costs money. And the opi- opioid epidemic as a problem is a multi-billion dollar hole in our public health and safety uh, apparatus, if you want to look at it like that, right? Everything from overstretched police office, you know, police departments to, you know, swamped, you know, medical examiners who can't determine, you know, cause of death as accurately as they would like to because, well, I've got 30 bodies this week or this yeah. month. And I'm one guy and I don't have time to do, you know, toxicology screens and like all that stuff takes time. Yeah. Um, you know, all, and then to the treatment part, right? The public health aspect of this, right? How do we reduce the harm that people are doing to themselves? How do we reduce the, you know, the demand of this drug? And then how do we reduce the supply? Of course, when it comes to opioids, you know, you see it affecting the population at large and it it doesn't just affect veterans, but it seems, of course, that through the research that we've seen, the numbers that we've seen, there is kind of an outsized impact on the veteran community as a, uh, you know, assistant director of national security for the Legion. How big of a threat are opioids? If you were to break it down, someone asked you that question as simple as it sounds, it may not be a simple answer, but how big of a threat are they to us? I mean, I, Listen, I, I really see it as one of the as the top national security issue for the United States, right? We can talk about foreign terrorism and great power competition and these sort of things, but when it comes down to what is doing the most demonstrable harm to our society, it is this scourge of, you know, 
freely available, high quality, uh, or you know, very powerful uh, opioids, you know, throughout you know drug markets around the country that are killing upwards of you know forty thousand plus people a year. Right. That is costing you know communities and states and the national you know the government billions of dollars per year in treating and you know incarcerating people and so I mean the cost is immense both both in terms of lives and dollars right and but it, but it's never treated as the sort of existential threat that it is because in a lot of these communities it is existential right the the you know you look in especially more rural communities particularly in the midwest and the south and there are communities that are they're just devastated yeah right i mean there are people who don't know who can name a dozen people that have either OD'd or died off of, you know, opioids, right. whether it legal or illegal. Um, and there's this transnational criminal organization or this uh, transnational organized crime element that runs through this crisis, right? Because these drugs don't just magically get to the United States. No, they have to get from point A to point B. And uh, because of the illegality of them when it comes to the illegal drugs and to be to be clear, this is a multi-pronged problem because a oh, yes. lot of those opioids out there, especially in the veteran community, they're not coming from the dealer on the corner. They're coming from the pharmacy. They're coming from the CVS. They're coming from the prescription that you got from the VA. Right. I mean, it, it's it's a multifaceted issue, but the crime issue and the people who, you know, maybe uh, get hooked on opioids when they're prescribed to them and then don't have a prescription anymore. And then they start going for the illegal version. Those do have to get into the country. And that's another thing that I know the Legion is looking at is those outside traffickers bringing everything right. in the people who are behind the drugs, being able to get to the user out there. What is the Legion looking to try and uh, shine the light on there? And what do you think we can do to address the issue? Well, I mean, with these sort of supply side issues, it's, you know, it, it's always very difficult to interdict anywhere close to, um, you know, close to enough drugs to make a demonstrable impact on the drug market. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, the, and most of the heroin is coming, you know, is coming from the Southern border from Mexico. You know, at this point, the, the Mexican cartels have created a production process to meet the U.S. demand for opioids. Right. And they're doing it with heroin. And now, you know, and over the last you know, year or two, they've been, you know, further adulterating it with uh, synthetic opioids like fentanyl and carfentanyl. Right. You know, because opioid users develop tolerances, you know, it's, uh, eventually that that same amount of heroin is just not enough to, you know, to right. ease the pain. And so users are, you know, driven more toward, you know, these these very powerful and often fatal uh, right. combinations of heroin and fentanyl. You build up a tolerance and eventually uh, it can cause serious problems. And I remember uh, one of my favorite singers, Brad Knoll from Sublime, Southern California boy sure. like yourself, uh, heroin user, had been clean for a while, started using again and using the same amount he'd been using after using for years, and it basically killed him right there. Right. Like, that is that, a common story happens. in addiction, essentially, especially, particularly with opioids, right? Yeah. Uh, people will sober up or you know, clean, you know, clean up for you know, a week, a couple weeks, you know, months potentially, and you know, the, the, your tolerance diminishes pretty rapidly once you're, uh, you know, once you, once the withdrawal, you know, basically once you go down that, go down that path and, you know, talking more recently, Prince, you know, Tom Petty, oh, yeah. bo you know, both have, uh, you know, heard pr things Prince, Prince, even more recently, the singer from the, uh, the, the cranberries I've heard was another uh, drug overdose. Okay. Well, I wasn't aware of that, medication, but, yeah. but I mean, I, I think it does go to show that this is not a, it's not a class issue. It's not a geographic issue. This is a societal issue. Yeah. And particularly as it relates to veterans, veterans are about twice as likely to overdose on opioids in the general population. Mm. You know, and if you want to get into, 
you know, trying to draw out, you know, broader connections, you can also look at the, you know, the veteran overdose rate, yeah. right? Because a lot of veterans who are, I'm sorry, veteran suicide rate. Right. Excuse me. The number of suicides, as we talked about uh, last week, the number of suicides have gone down. However, the suicide rate has increased because there are fewer veterans around. As the right. greatest generation leaves us, there were so many people who served in World War II. Uh, you, you do the math and you do the ratios and you realize, okay, the numbers are down, but the rate is actually rising as we speak. So that's, uh, you know, good moves being made in, in a way, but also some troubling ones. So the VA was kind of at the forefront of pain management and uh, or, or trying, you know, or looking to do pain, you know, uh, develop pain management protocols, and they did that through opioid prescriptions. And that, and that, you know, carried on for a good four, you know, several years um, in the mid to uh, mid two thousands into the two, you know two thousand ten and beyond. You know, it's in the last few years that they've been looking at. They've changed their prescription guidelines. You know, they're doing a lot better monitoring of who's taking, uh, right. who's being prescribed opioids. They're sharing that information with state um, uh, prescription um, monitoring programs. But they're tapering off veterans, essentially, who have been prescribed opioids. And these veterans are now finding themselves perhaps without uh, something that's effective at managing their pain. Mm. And if they're tapered off or if they're no longer a able to access something, and they don't have any alternatives to that, you know, you, you've, you come down to the situation where now you have veterans who used to be, you, you, you know, were on, on legal prescription drugs that have now turned the black market to, you know, to find, to find the replacement, essentially. Find replacement, yeah. Essentially. And, and that's, it's, it's a problem and it's a big problem. And it's, as I said, multifaceted and you may be sitting in your, uh, you know, nice neighborhood in a nice house and hear something about like, Oh, let's say MS 13 and think, sure. well, that's got nothing to do with me. I lived in a town in Long Island where they did have something to do with us. They were right down the street and it was a big problem. What people often fail to realize is that those uh, those crime syndicates like that are often very heavily involved in the drug trade. So while they may not have any direct relation to you, that may be something that's happening over there. It has overarching effects that will have some effect on your life or the life of someone you know. So it's absolutely, I, I would 100% agree with you in that it's a huge national security issue. One other thing I wanted to talk to you about as we uh, finish up and we're, we're finishing up our time here with Eric Gopel, who's the assistant director of the American Legion's National Security Division, is the 2018 NDAA. When we look at that, how do we think it's going to affect the veteran and retiree community specifically? We know that there's, you know, the National Defense Authorization Act is applying mostly to the active duty military, but it does apply to the veteran and retiree communities as sure. well. Well, and the, and the Legion has active duty members. So, I mean, um, you know, the active duty gets a pay, uh, talking like personnel side, active duty gets a pay rise. Yeah. Uh, as far as retirees go, you know, there are changes to uh, TRICARE co-pays. That's, right. that's probably been one of the most prominent issues uh, as it relates to, you know, retiree personnel um, with this NDAA. Uh, you know, and that's, you know, that that's something the Legion has has come out against, but that is something that is, uh, as far as I know, you know, that that language is in the NDAA, and so you know, retirees are going to start seeing rises in their uh, in their out of pocket expenses. Yeah, and that's uh, that's a big one. That's a significant right. issue because there are. A lot of retirees, I mean, I think we hear retiree and we think someone that's, oh, they've made enough money to be set for the rest of their life. 
the vast majority of retirees are almost living paycheck to paycheck. They have everything planned out specifically. So, and we've talked about it before where it, income, yeah. being aware of the rise allows them to prepare for it. Some people weren't aware that that rise in the, uh, the copay amount was coming. So that's, that's certainly been a big one. When we talk about national security and the American Legion and the membership and concerns that they might have, how can they bring up concerns that they have or, or check if you guys are focused on the same things that they are? Is there a, an aspect of the American Legion website that they can go to that focuses on national security issues specifically? Well, there is a national security page on the, on the website, and that's something that we're working to update right now to sort of uh, make a little more relevant to issues that we're actively working on, particularly you know, opioids, cybersecurity, transnational organized crime. Right. Th- those three initiatives uh, we've built o- up over the last year. And so this year we're working to operationalize that a little bit and try to, if not do public outreach and education events, you know, uh, well, we're definitely doing public outreach and education events. But we're trying to bring lawmakers, the public, and policy experts together to really, you know, have an honest discussion on how to address a lot of these issues because they're so complex, Right. It, you can't take you can't pull a thread out of the opioid epidemic without unraveling a number of other pub, public policy concerns, and can you effectively address these things without addressing these others? Hmm. I mean, that's what makes the, that's what makes this such a tough issue to to grapple with because it is so complex. There are, as I said, many facets and many conversations that need to be had as they resort as they well as they. <laughs> Many conversations that have to be had as they affect the veteran community specifically. And uh, I'm glad that there are people working so hard on that, including our guest here, Eric Gopel, Assistant Director of the American Legion's National Security Division. Eric, we want to thank you so much, not only for your service in our military, but your continuing service as you work with the Legion to help your fellow uh, vets. Well, thank you very much, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. Eric? Eric? T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.